Last week in chapter 13, we covered the surface drama. And we talked a little bit about the tension that's there that Jesus breaks all social norms and all the expectations of the disciples and gets up in the middle of the meal and washes their feet. And this caught all of them by surprise and everyone who ever lived in a, an Eastern culture by surprise because the master would never wash the feet of the invited guests. The master would never act as a servant. And the disciples rightly said, how could our master serve us? This is the Messiah. This is the son of God, the, the one in whom we believe. How can you wash my dirty, stinking feet? But there's that surface tension. And then as John likes to do, he tells us of the spiritual nature of what's going on. And so what's happening underneath here is he gives us little clues along the way that Judas in his heart is conspiring with the devil to give Jesus over to the officials and ultimately be crucified. And so this is the nature of expository preaching. This is the, the nature of walking through scripture one, one text after another. Uh, not skipping over the, the parts that are less easy to preach or less comfortable. And so many times we get high emotions one day and low emotions the next. And sometimes it's, it's more emotional. Sometimes it's more intellectual. This one today is going to be a little more sobering. And, gives a, and give us some, some things to think about and how we typically view this story and how in a lot of ways it's, it's presented. Because from last week to this week, we get this contrast from the pure devotion of the Son of God to the pure depravity of the Son of Destruction. And there can be no greater contrast. John has been preparing us for this for a while, and so is Jesus. If you look in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, verse 70, when Peter makes this declaration of, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed... And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is speaking for all the disciples. He's saying a collective we here. But Jesus corrects him in verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's... Read through our text and then uh, we'll walk back through it together. So just to give context, and I, I'd like us to do this more often. You know, we live in a soundbite culture, right? That if a YouTube video is more than two minutes long, we don't want to watch it. If it, it can't fit on a meme, it's not worth me knowing. And a lot of times we approach scripture the same way. And we try not to do that here, but I'd like us to get in the habit of reading in context, because this is one account, and because we want to do it, it's just as we break it into two weeks. So I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 30. Please read along with me and see if you can pay attention to the details that are setting up this underlying drama that we're going to focus on today in verses 18 through 30. So beginning in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus said to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And if you are and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple Leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus said, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray. Lord, help us in our frailty to understand what you're doing here. Sometimes it's so hard, 2,000 years removed from the events of this room to really understand the gravity of it. But you came to serve for the love of those who are yours. You knelt down and washed their feet. You gave them an example and a commission to be sent ones to go into the nations and proclaim the good news the Lord's favor to every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
And this you never wavered from, even when one of those very disciples hated you to the very fiber of his being, enough to sell you to the devil. Lord, help us never lose the weight of this, your love for us and the price that you paid for it. You had to be betrayed. You had to go to the cross or there is no redemption. There is no salvation. There is no hope for us apart from you. Let the sobering nature of this text and these events convict us. Help us to cry out and shout out for your, in thankfulness for your mercy toward us. Let your spirit teach us and guide us and bring us to remembrance of all things through your word. And this we ask by the mighty name of Jesus, the only name under heaven and earth by which man can be saved. Amen. All right, so typically this story is seen as a tragedy. Now, if you're not familiar with literary genres, a tragedy is something that the, the Greeks were famous for. And so they would love to prop up the hero of the story, the protagonist, if you will, and point out the flaws in that person or the flaws in their circumstances. And Aristotle describes a a, a tragedy as the main person in the story. His whole life falls apart, either by some fault of his own or circumstances that he is helpless to affect around him. And it ends unhappily. It ends in disappointment and it serves to be a life lesson to all those who hear it. Don't do as this person did or this will happen to you. This is how the Greeks view tragedy. And this is sadly how many people view this text. Even many commentators I read this week make Jesus out to be the victim in the story. Make Jesus out to be some unwilling participant who is doing everything he can to, con- to convince Judas to get him to course correct, to do something other than what he's already set in his heart to do. There's only one problem with that. Is that what we read here? Is Jesus the type who is helpless, who is unknowing of what's going on around him, who's a victim of his circumstances? Not only is he aware of what Judas is about to do, but he directs him to do it. Because it must happen. This makes people uncomfortable. Jesus had to die. Judas had to betray him. You understand that? The moment that sin came into this world, the cross was inevitable. The moment that Adam and Eve said, I want to be God. Man has been trying to do it ever since. And only God could reconcile them. All of redemptive history and all of scripture up to this point is looking forward to this moment. It had to happen. The amazing part of all of this is that Jesus uses Judas's betrayal for the sake of the belief of his apostles and the faith of all of his disciples. This is the greatest example we have ever seen of God using evil for his glory and for the good of his people. Don't lose sight of that. Let's walk through our text. We're going to focus again on verses 18 through 30. 
So 18 is picking up in the middle of Jesus' teaching here, and we're going to draw some connections to what happened last week. Verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Now let's start there. Jesus gets particular again. Because last week he said, you are clean, plural, but not all of you. You are blessed if you do these things, but not all of you. Jesus particularly speaks to his disciples now. He, he draws this division between those he has chosen for one purpose and those he has chosen for another. He's continuing in verse 17. Verse 17 says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know that I've washed you and made you clean, if you know that I've come as your example to lead you, that you might serve one another, if you know these things and do them, blessed are you. I am not speaking of all of you, though. This is an important, the first thing we have to look at. This verse 18, as commentators describe it, is so pregnant with symbolism. It is about to burst. There's so much in one verse here. And there's a few things I want us to look at first. I'm not talking about all of you. Because the blessings that come from the gospel are for believers. Hebrews 11.6 tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. Isaiah 64.6 tells us our good deeds are bloody menstrual garments on our own. I'm not talking to all of you. There is no blessing for you who are apart from me. There is no good works apart from Christ. This is not some general command to moralism. This is a command to serve in the name of Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ. And there is blessing in that. So he goes on. Again, not the unwilling participant, not the one who who can't sway Judas, who just isn't convincing enough for Judas's hard heart. He says, I know who I have chosen. Now, what did Jesus tell us in John chapter six, verse 70? Did I not choose you the 12? He didn't say I chose you the 11. I chose you the 12. 11 were chosen for one purpose and the 12th was chosen for another This speaks of the particular foreknowledge, calling and election and plan of Jesus. He knows are his. He knows his sheep and he knows the goats. And he has a purpose for them both. Those he called to be his disciples, he washes them because he chose them. They are blessed because he chose them. And so it is with us. Think about that. Just like Jesus was not unaware then, he is not unaware now. He is not reacting to what we do. He's not waiting for for us to figure him out. He is God. He knows all things. All things are in his hands. And that is his love, his mercy, and his calling set on the disciples and all of his disciples throughout all the ages. That is who our Savior is. If he calls you, he washes you. And because he has washed you, you are blessed. You are his. Let that be our identity. Let that be higher than any other thing we apply to ourselves. But not all of you. Because Judas Judas is chosen. But not in the same way. Judas is chosen for a different purpose. 
in order that the scripture will be maybe fulfilled, but the scripture will be fulfilled. This is an important lesson we can learn from Jesus. It's another thing we can pull from this passage. Jesus always confirms his most important sayings with scripture. This is why we spend so much time in the word here, because Jesus did. When Jesus said the things he really wanted them to know, he said, thus it is written. This will be fulfilled. The prophets say. He knows the unchanging nature of God's word. And so do we. And so we look at Jesus in this example. He tells the same thing in John chapter 17. And we'll get there at some point in some future. But he says this in 1712. This is his prayer before the father. This is how Jesus speaks to the father about this moment. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? There are many here, but Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, 9, which we read earlier. My close friend. Psalm 149, just the one verse should cause us. Pause, because David is writing this as his close friend, the son of Jonathan at that, betrays him. Psalm 41, 9 says this, which Jesus quotes. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. The Psalms give us every range of human emotion. There is praise, there is joy, there is reflection, there is sorrow, there is grieving. Jesus quotes a psalm of grieving. A parallel psalm to that is Psalm 55. We read that this morning in our morning prayer. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, uh, but if you feel like you are beaten up in every direction and that the world just doesn't make sense and you cry out to God, what is his response? I want to read three verses from Psalm 55. And it gets in the nature of this because this is a continuation of Psalm 41. Psalm 55, verses 12, 13, and 14. Listen to what David says here and kind of get the, the sense of what Jesus is getting at. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you. A man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked into the throng. Judas is a man who took sweet counsel with the Savior. Judas was a close friend who walked by his side for three years. All for the purpose of the scriptures being fulfilled. Back in John He quotes from Psalm 41. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. The first thing we need to see here, he who ate my bread. Now, we like bread. We're Americans. We love carbs. Uh, But we don't have the the place for bread that they did did in Eastern cultures and, and still do. There is a sense of honor that happens at a meal. So when the host or the master of the feast offers you his bread, it is a sign of honor. It is a sign of importance. And when you take the master's bread and stab him in the back, 
It would be the worst shame that, that you could do in that culture. Because he doesn't just take the bread and receive it. He takes the bread and he lifts up his heel. Not the heel of the bread that no one likes anyway. But this is a saying that, that comes from horses. You know, when a horse lifts up its heel, if you're standing behind them, it's not going to be good. So this is someone who seeks violence, who lifts their leg up to kick, trip, or hurt you. He takes my bread and he lifts up his heel and he's going to cock back and kick me. This is the, the, the sense of the saying. This is what's going on here. This was such an offense to Eastern sensibilities. We don't, we don't get this. But this is still the issue today. If you were to eat with someone in the Middle East and you, you would wait for the, the master to hand you bread, to invite you to the table. Then you can, then you can eat. There's, there, there's a process here. So anyone living in that culture then or now would, would read this and would never, could never imagine bringing shame to this generous uh, act of, of hospitality. Hospitality. Two words. I read hostility and said hospitality. That's a new word. Um, and, but furthermore, this is a declaration of spiritual war. The master said, here is the bread. Here is my table. He lifts up his heel. I don't want bread. I want my 30 pieces of silver. This is the worst case ever of biting the hand that feeds you. We don't get that being separated from this this culture. And imagine the, the ears of the disciples as they hear this. But as we think about this, this is hard for our minds to grasp. And we can, we can be honest about this because it's so difficult for us to understand how God receives glory from wicked actions. Why did this have to happen? Why did it have to happen this way? Why did Judas have to betray him? Why did it have to be one of the 12? I think the disciples after this moment are thinking the same thing. But God's word does not return void. Even the reprehensible prophecies in the scriptures are fulfilled for the glory of Christ. Even the things that are unthinkable, God receives more glory from. This is just cause, cause us to awe and wonder at how God weaves together the prophecies and, and history. All to point to and to exalt Christ. 20 minutes were one verse down. The rest are not going to be this in depth. But I wanted you to get verse 18 before we move on. Jesus says, I am telling you this now in verse 19 before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. I am telling you this now. Jesus is speaking prophetically. I'm telling you of something now that's going to happen in the future. Hebrews 1, 1, as Jonathan referenced earlier, tells us that in former days he spoke through the prophets, but in this day. And from this day forth, he speaks through his son. Jesus here is speaking prophetically as the word made flesh, as the I am. I am telling you this so that you might believe. All the signs, all the teachings, all the the predictions so that they would believe. John tells us the whole purpose of this gospel, even the wickedness of Judas's betrayal is to reinforce their faith. Isn't that incredible? It is amazing 
what great lengths God goes to for his people. Jesus left glory to take on flesh and suffering for his people. Went to the cross, died, rose again, went back to glory for the sake of his people, but did not leave us here. Sends his spirit to confirm, remind us of what he has done so that we believe. And even along the way, he came for them. He was going to die for their sins. Even along the way, he holds their hand. And he says, I'm doing this so that you believe. I'm telling you this to increase your faith. (laughs) Praise God, our Savior does the same thing for us. Not only did he come and die for our sins, but he sent his spirit to remind us of these things. To strengthen our belief. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who sends, uh, send, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Now, it seems like kind of an abrupt change here. I mean, Jesus is, is, but what he's doing, he's weaving in and out of his teaching and he's, and he's prophesying at the same time. So you got to remember, this is in the same breath of verse 16 and 17. Read it like this. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Prophecy, then truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who who I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus is picking up right where he left off. I'm giving you this example. Blessed are you if you do this. Side note, one of you is going to betray me. Let's get back to the teaching. You know what I love about this? Is that Jesus doesn't, <laughs> Jesus doesn't um, despair over the one. He encourages the eleven. Even though he's right in the middle of telling them one of you is going to betray me. But back to first things first. Let me encourage you. One of you is going to betray me, but I am sent from God. You are sent from me. You are my apostles, the sent ones. Don't let anyone discourage you. I am sending you. Let's take that note from Jesus. Don't despair over the one. Jesus encourages the 11. Don't, Jesus is not deterred here. This does not disrupt anything that Jesus is doing at all. Even in the midst of, of, of the betrayal, his priority is to teach and encourage his own, as it is always. This treachery changes nothing. The mission does not change. Let that encourage you. Because he says, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. When people reject the gospel, when people criticize you for the name of Christ, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting Christ and the one who sent him. They are ultimately rejecting him and the father. Many times we make this 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 personal. What if I don't say the right things? What if this person doesn't respond to me? You have been sent. We are his ambassadors. We represent the king of kings. And those who reject the king of kings are rejecting him, not us. We're just the messengers. Many times they may shoot the messenger along the way, but that's not our concern. Our concern is the glory of the king. 
is the honor of the Father. And this is what Jesus wants them to know. He wants to solidify this. Regardless of what happens, I am sending you. I am he. I am the one from the Father. So he finishes his teaching. And there's a transition here. Because this teaching is going to set up what, what happens next. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Now, this same phrase, he's troubled in his spirit, John uses three times. We've seen it in three successive chapters. Chapter 11, Jesus is standing before Lazarus' tomb with everyone wailing and his friends and their hearts being broken, and he's troubled in his spirit. Chapter 12, he prophesies of his crucifixion and the way that he is to die, and he is troubled in his spirit. And again, now when he lays out the details of his betrayal, he is troubled in his spirit. This is our Savior, perfect in his humanity, yet troubled to the core. This word in the Greek, agitated, like when your, your washing machine agitates, it, it shakes. He would have been visibly affected by this. It is not a sin to hurt. It is not a sin to be affected by things that are heartbreaking. This is meant to be heartbreaking. My disciple is following Satan. My disciple wants to kill me. Then there's the pin drop moment. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is the third truly, truly, the third amen, amen. Let it be, let it be. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Wait, what? So, you know, put yourself in the position of, of the disciples. They're, this is like opposite day, right? Jesus just washed their feet. And this just completely threw them off. And then he tells them, one of you. You see this, this moment where all of them start looking around at each other. One of us is going to, how could we betray you? Jesus made this proclamation on behalf of all of them in chapter 6. Jesus said, one of you is a devil. But they're still not listening. It's important to consider all of them were with Jesus for three years. The writer of Hebrews says about apostates in Hebrews chapter 6. The ones who tasted the heavenly gift, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That was Judas. Those things and still was an apostate, still turned his back on Christ. One of you will betray me. This should go to show that those who hate Christ, those who do not respond. It's not like they need to be convinced more or they need more evidence. Like Judas, they are dead in, in, in dormant. But one way their hatred, one day their hatred and their opposition to Christ will come to the surface. Judas was dormant. He was a sleeper agent for years until this moment. Then the disciples, verse 22, looked at one another, uncertain of whom he had spoke. The disciples are always confused. 
to the whole, think about the, the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Prior to the Holy Spirit, the disciples are always, they're always clueless. Like, Jesus just tells them and they're looking around like, what, what's happening here? And I love that John, when John wrote this gospel, he's an old man, probably in his 80s or 90s, 50 years, 50 plus years into the future. And he writes this with great detail. Then the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. John's, John's mind flashes back to that room of these scared young men who were like, which one of us is it going to be? One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. This is one of the few times that John speaks about himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And John does not need any, any, any credit here. But John takes the greatest name anyone can ever receive. The disciple whom Jesus loves. There is no greater title. I don't need name recognition. Jesus loves me. I want you to think about that for a moment. Do you ever think of yourself this way? Do you ever remember that if you are his, he chose you. He called you. He washed you. He blessed you. If you are his, you are the disciple he loves. Because when we get discouraged, do you remember that you are the disciple he loves? Romans 5, 8 tells us that the love of God shown on us is that Christ would die for the ungodly. That is the love of God. When you're discouraged, you are the disciple he loves. When your own abilities let you down, you are the disciple he loves. When you doubt that you can even be loved, Jesus came to earth to die for you and for me, the ones he loves. And when the lies of the enemy run like like a Twitter feed in your mind over and over and over again. Remember, you were the disciple he loved. He shed his blood for you. And let's be like John. When does not even want his name mentioned in the story, just Jesus loved me and that's enough for me. I'm just, I'm just here to tell the story. What a great example for us. Find comfort and I am the disciple that Jesus loves. So he goes on with the details here. So one of the disciples whom Jesus loves was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Now remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. This is not Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper where they're, they're sitting next to each other at this long table that makes for a great photo op. That's not what meals were like. It would have been a U-shaped couch. So there would have been, been blocks with couch cushions on them. The master sits in the middle. They would recline at an angle, so they would lay on their left side, resting on their left elbow with their their feet hanging outside of these couches. And so everyone would lay up that same way. Everyone rested on their left arm and ate with their right arm. So now you can kind of picture Jesus in the middle and all the disciples lined up. So the disciple that Jesus loves was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Which side? It's important for for the story here. That he was reclining at his right side. So when Peter leans over and he motions to him to ask Jesus of whom he's speaking, that disciple leaning back against Jesus. Here's Jesus on his left elbow. Here's John next to him on his left elbow. And John leans back to ask Jesus, who is it? That's why the 
the, the, the Greek uses the word bosom. Many people have, have tried to d- distort this, but John is leaning back onto Jesus' chest. There's an intimacy here. He leans back to ask him a question. And Peter, we don't know where he is, but he's, he's far enough away where he can't ask Jesus himself, but he's like, hey, will you, w- what's, what's going on here? Ask him. And then John, in this low voice, probably says, who is it? Now, before we go forward, I want to get some more details from Matthew's gospel. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 26. Because again, John is always complimenting the, the synoptics. He's complimenting Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I like what Matthew does here because Matthew puts it all in chapter 26. We can see these, this um, stream of events from beginning to completion. So Matthew 26, I want to just skip around a little bit. Starting in verse 1, he says this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, so he's, he's teaching them, uh, they call it the Olivet Discourse, the last things and all that. Uh, when Jesus had finished all these things, he says to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. We're looking back a little bit. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then you've got the plot of the high priests, the anointing at Bethany, which we covered a few weeks ago. Skip back down to verse 14. Matthew gives us this background information before the Passover, before this very event in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Judas is a willing participant. Judas sought out the payday. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This was not a reactionary decision by by Judas. This was premeditated. This was in his mind for days. He's looking for an opportunity. That's why John tells us in verse 2, the devil had already started working on his heart. So Jesus institutes... uh, where are we? The, the, the Lord's Supper, right before the institution of the Lord's Supper, pick up in verse 20. Same event, John, or Matthew gives a little bit more detail here. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to, to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. She just cause pause in us for a moment. We'll pick up where John does here in verse 26. Jesus answered, It is to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So here's something about dipping as well. We need to understand culturally. This is another one of those master of the feast moments. It is an honor to be given bread by the master. It is a sign of utmost intimacy for the master to take a piece of bread, either in a cup or in some kind of soup or or, or sauce or whatever it is, dip it. And hand it to you to eat. This is a master giving you honor. This is the one who is most intimate. The the most honored guest would get this first. 
It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. This still happens today. We get a beautiful picture of this in Ruth 2. The kinsman redeemer, Boaz, brings Ruth in and lets her clean from the fields. And when Boaz brings her to his table, he gives her these these beautiful words. He says, eat of this bread, dip it in my wine. It is a beautiful moment. He's signaling to everyone around her, this woman is under my protection. This woman is under my care. This woman is honored in my house. And this will set the romance in, in motion. And this is also one of the reasons why we use the intention method. It is intimacy in that we use a shared cup and we, and, and we, we dip together. There is a, a unity in the way that we partake of the blood and, and body of Christ. And so this is a beautiful gesture, but in Judas's case, it adds insult to injury. Because Jesus shows him intimacy and Judas shows contempt. This shows you of his status. And then it goes a step further. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now, something, another detail we can tend to gloss over. But we need to understand what John is doing here. What did he say in verse 2? During the supper when the devil put it into his heart. Devil. This particular word means accuser, slanderer, liar. The devil put a lie into his heart. But here, Satan entered into him. Satan, this is the word for adversary. There's an escalation here. The liar who sows the the seeds of lies, and that's where Satan always begins, now becomes an adversary. He is so invested in overthrowing Christ, he is so invested in destroying him, that he himself enters into Judas. He himself possesses him. If you want something to be done right, do it yourself. There is an escalation here from the liar to the adversary. This is declaration of spiritual war. I am entering into the very enemy of Christ. And so when Jesus says earlier on in chapter 8 that you are sons of Satan, you are sons of the devil, your side has already been picked. You are aligning yourself with the one who went out of his way to deceive one of his disciples. This is an act of war. What does Jesus say? Satan entered into him and Jesus says, what you are going to do, do quickly. What does he say? Don't do it, Judas. Stop anything but this. I plead with you. No. Jesus does not grovel at the feet of his betrayer. He says, do it quickly. What you're going to do, do it. Because it must be done. This is unavoidable. It had to be done. Otherwise, there's no fulfillment of scripture. Otherwise, there's no redemption. Otherwise, there's no faith. Otherwise, there's no us. Do it for the sake of my disciples. Do it for the sake of my people. Go, do it quickly. Get this over with. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. 
Some thought that because Jesus, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, uh, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. The disciples are not very perceptive. Um, Jesus hands them the bread, tells them, do what you got to do. And they say, what, is he going to buy bread? Like, but it's so easy in, in hindsight for us to look back and, and criticize them. Because they would have had no way of knowing that the cross was coming. They would have no way of knowing the importance of it. They would have no way of knowing the significance of everything that was about to happen. They would have no way of knowing the necessity that one of them betrayed Jesus so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And the other thing we've got to think about, think about how good of an actor Judas was. For three years, Judas plays this role of loving disciple. And even after Jesus hands him the guilty bread, they're still like, I don't know who it is. It couldn't, couldn't be Judas. Judas was here with us the whole time. So it is with wolves in sheep's clothing. So many times people will play the role for a while. Those sleeper agents are dormant for a while. So the moment comes to show their true colors. This is why the the scriptures again and again, we looked at Hebrews chapter 6 and others warn us about examining ourselves and examining the body. Because there are those who act as if they're disciples, who act as if they love the Savior, but in their hearts. They're set on their 30 pieces of silver. Seems like foolishness to us who have heavenly riches. There's one other thing that's interesting here. One of the things that they considered, buy what we need for the feast. He actually was going to buy what was needed. Or more precisely, sell what was needed. There was a lamb needed for sacrifice. He was going to sell his soul to Satan for the price of the lamb of God. He was going to purchase what would pay for the sins of his people. Matthew 1, 21 tells us when uh, the angel comes to Mary and says, "This this is Jesus, name him Jesus, the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sin. Jesus went to pay the price for that. Jesus went to buy the lamb for the Passover sacrifice. He doesn't know to what sense he's paying for the final sacrifice. Isn't this amazing? That God uses the betrayal of Judas to increase the faith of the saints and accomplish his redemption. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. Well, the disciples didn't know, but Judas knew. The coward, as soon as he gets exposed, as soon as he's handed the bread, runs out of there. Immediately goes to collect his bounty and betray the Lord. But don't miss this last line. And it was night. Figuratively and literally. It was nighttime, as Matthew tells us, but figuratively. Night in the scriptures is never a good thing. Night is never used in a positive manner in in John. All of these references to night and darkness find their culmination here. That the Son of Man is betrayed. Darkness has for a moment looked like it's accomplished its purpose. It was night outside and it was night inside Judas' heart. 
the betrayal was solidified. So it kind of feels like we're leaving on a cliffhanger here. Um, we're going to pick up next week, but I just want to leave you with a couple things in conclusion. As an encouragement, if Jesus patiently walked and ministered with the one who would betray him, how much patience do you think he has with the ones he sets his love on and came to die for? Let that comfort you when you're burdened with your own sin. Cast your burdens on him. If he can bear with Judas, he can bear with you. Many of you do not believe that. I've talked to so many of you who struggle with how can I be loved? How can I be forgiven? This is how patient, loving, and merciful our Savior is. And when you're tempted to read this story with Jesus as the victim, or when people try to tell this, that Jesus, this is out of Jesus' control, I want you to consider three things. And when this is hard for us to understand, remember this. This betrayal does not shake the faith of the disciples. It reinforces it. This betrayal does not disrupt the redemption of the elect. It secures it. And this does not alter the purpose of Jesus' ministry. It completes it. Let's pray. Our God, rich in mercy, awesome in power, only you can use evil for good. Only you can take things our hearts can't even comprehend and use them for your glory and for the sake of your people. Thank you that you are a God who loves us to the end who loves us so much that in our sin, we would all be Judases without you. You take on flesh to redeem us. Thank you. You are God who bears with us. You are God who does not despair in the one, but encourages the eleven. And let us as your disciples be encouraged. Let us rest in what you came to accomplish and have accomplished for us. you are in this room this morning and you do not know him if you do not believe cast your burdens on him his grace is sufficient for you and your weakness your own goodness is as filthy bloody rags but he can make you white as snow our savior loved us called us, saved us, and brought us back into the fold of his eternal grace. And it is in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.